Well, good morning. Happy post Thanksgiving. Break out the sweaters, right? Start covering up whatever uh, overindulgences you partook of. If you brought a Bible, go ahead and open it to the book of Luke. We are starting a new series as we head into the season of Advent. And as you turn there, um, she might get on to me for saying this, but I I want you all to know that our very own Molly Slaughter is responsible for the artwork on the front of your bulletin this morning. Um, I think it's incredible, and she does a great job, and I wanted to highlight that. But we are starting a new series of Advent called Songs of the Savior. And as you turn there... Missing a page here. Awesome. Let me grab a Bible. As I turn there, one of the things that we're going to be going through over the next four weeks as we head into Christmas uh, is looking at these songs of Advent, these songs that, that are only in the book of Luke, and these songs that. Um, Invite us in to a story that is going on, God's story, um, that centers around the arrival or the coming of Jesus Christ. Um, One commentary says this about these songs, these carols. He says, these songs are the last of the Hebrew psalms and the first of the Christian hymns. And I think that is a very uh, correct and accurate way to speak of these songs. And the first one we're going to look at this morning is Mary's song, often called the Magnificent. But if you will, let's give our attention to the reading of God's word found in Luke chapter 1. Your bulletin says 39 to 55. I'm actually going to include 38. So brace yourself. Beginning in verse 38. And Mary said, Behold, I am, a serv- I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. Speaking of the baby in Elizabeth's womb, John. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the, Lord, when, the, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Verse 46, and Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent empty away. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. And he spoke, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. 
Amen. Let me pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning, this day that you have created. We pray now that as we look at your word, that you would do a miracle, and by a miracle that you would soften our hearts, or that you would open our eyes and our ears, so that we may hear and see things otherwise we could not, so that we may leave here changed people. We ask this in your name. Amen. What causes you to celebrate? What causes you to celebrate? What causes you to break into song, maybe both literally, but certainly figuratively speaking as well? What causes you to do that? Uh, maybe for one generation, it was the, fr- the phrase, the war is over, was reason to celebrate, for sure. For some, maybe it's receiving a promotion at work, absolutely reason to celebrate there. For many, it's, it's a wedding. Uh, some of you recently have been to a wedding, I know. Um, I love a good wedding. For whatever reason, um, I, I just, there isn't, there are a few things right now that really just take my imagination to a place and allow me to celebrate what it is that we're actually doing here. What is it for you, though? What is it that causes you to celebrate? What is it that causes you to sing? Maybe for some of you, it's rushing the field after standing in freezing rain over two overtimes to watch your in-state, in-division rival get beat and ruin their chances of playoffs. I don't know. That might be you. (laughs) Whatever it is, what it, what it is that we celebrate, what, whatever, it, whatever it is that we find ourselves singing about, is indicative of the story or stories that we long to be a part of. Let me say that one more time. What it is that we celebrate, what it is that we find ourselves singing about, is indicative of the story or stories that we long to be a part of, or at least that we want to find ourselves belonging to. And in the song that we just read, that we just read of Mary's, is not just a song that she is singing of celebration, which we'll look at in a second, of what is happening to her. It is a song and a story that she is inviting you this Advent season to be a part of. A story of celebration, what God is not only doing in the life of his people, but what he's doing for all generation. And so to get at that, I really want to look at just two things, and then a third thing would be more application. I want to look at what is Advent really? What is Advent to begin with? And then second, I want us to look at what is the song? What is Mary singing about? And then I want us to look at, lastly, how does this song become our own? How does this song shape the way that you and I live today? So three things. What is Advent? What is the song about? And how does this song shape us? So let's look at the first one. What is Advent? A small confession here. I grew up in the church. Uh, grew up hearing many of Advent uh, sermons. Um, I, I knew it was Advent because I would come into the church and I would see these beautiful decorations and I would go along with it until one day, sometime after college, and we'll just leave it at that, I leaned over to the friend sitting next to me. It wasn't Ada. And I just said, what, is, what does Advent mean again? And there was a longer pause than I wanted. And then I heard the words, I think, and then I just, I, he didn't know either. You know, he didn't know either. If that's you this morning, then great. You can join me with this first point. And what is Advent really? Because, see, I think it's easy for us to, to get all dressed up and to play church and to sort of blend in with all its pomp and circumstance, especially during this time of the year. But let's start at the beginning. Advent 
is the arrival, the coming of a notable person or event. And the history of Advent within the church goes or does two things for us primarily. One, it causes us to look back to an event. In our case, to look back to the arrival of Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary, son of God, to redeem creation, to die for the sins of his people. It is a season that prepares us for something. It is a season like Lent in the spring that prepares us for the coming of Jesus. That's the first thing. But the second thing that Advent does is that by looking back to this arrival, we are forced then to what? Look forward to the second arrival, if you will. The ultimate arrival of when Jesus comes back. When Jesus comes to make all things right, as we say. So the first thing is looking back. The second thing it causes us to do is to look forward. This is what Advent was for Israel in the Old Testament. At the end of the Old Testament, Israel's Advent, if you will, was the story of Exodus, the story that we just got done going through here last week. That is, they looked back to this wonderful event in time where God freed his people from the bondage of slavery in Egypt and headed them across the Red Sea. Now, as big as an event that that was, looking back upon it told them that not only is this God's faithfulness to his people, not only is this his promises, but this also told them that this is not it. There is something for you to look forward to. And at the end of the Old Testament, we find that the arrival, the waiting, if you will, for that promise to, to, to come true, finds itself fulfilled in the beginnings of the gospel story. That finally, what the Exodus story was pointing to was finding its fruition in Jesus Christ. That's what the Old Testament um, Advent was for them. And so it is for us. And so today, as we sit looking back to the arrival of Jesus and waiting for his coming, we sit now in the time between the times, as many scholars have put it. That's where you and I live. That's where you exist this very morning. This is where we are in the story, in the time between the times. Many of us who faithfully and often painfully follow our beloved sports teams understand the time between the times to be that time long, long ago when your team actually won a national championship and the waiting for that someday, one day, whatever, when that may happen again. But that is not the time between the times that we speak of this morning. The time between the times this morning is the arrival of Jesus, the Son of God, and his final arrival when he comes to make all things new. It's a looking back to an arrival which prompts us to look forward to another. Which is why, and this is why I belabor this point, which is why the Christmas season for many of us is really a combination of the sweet and the sour. It is a combination of the sweet and the sour life that really nobody wants to talk about. We want to talk about the sweet. We want to eat all the cookies and the eggnog, and that's great, and I'm the first one in, in line. But we really want to talk about the sour. And there's a sense in which all of us carry the shame for even thinking about it. But what I want to free you, free you from or free you to this morning is that I think the sweet and the sour is supposed to be there. That this is what Advent is really about. So you come into church and the preacher is going to tell you how wonderful this time of year it is. And it is. It is wonderful. Jesus came and was born and he's here. He has arrived. 
But you can't come in here for the next four weeks without asking the question, yes, Jesus came here, Jesus was born, but at least I can't. I can't come in here for the next four weeks and say, Jesus has arrived, but that is not helping me right now. There seems to be so much more to do and get done. I am a mess. Jesus has arrived, but that is not helping my divorce. Jesus has arrived, but that is not making the cancer go away. Jesus has arrived, but that is not helping me deal with Aunt Joe or Uncle Bob or whoever it is who is showing up at my house for Thanksgiving or Christmas or whenever it is. Jesus has arrived, but it is a refrain that closets you as you walk into this building this morning. But for some of us, we're to just sort of ignore it. But what Advent is really saying to us is that the sweet and the sour is supposed to be there. That it is supposed to come together as a place where we see the fruition of God's promises on one side, but we wait for the fulfillment of those promises on the other. It's our place in the story. It's actually paying attention to where we are as God's people and his plans for redemption. It is the already but not yet, as many say, but... But here's the deal, and here's the twist. As we come in here to begin celebrating Advent, as we come in here and we look at this song that Mary's about to sing, we know that, that the sweet and the sour exist, but what Mary's song is telling us this morning, and as, 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 as it moves us uh, to, to get into what it is that she's singing about, we know that the sour exists, but what Mary's song is saying is that the sweetness, my friends, will win out. That is Advent. That as we hold these two things together, no matter how sour the sour gets, the sweetness wins out. There's no better way to move into the second point of what Mary's song is about than to say that that is true. That that's what Advent is. Mary's song is about this. It is about the majesty and the glory of God. And she looks at it in two ways. She looks at the glory and the majesty of God by first sort of reflecting on what God has done for her. And then she opens that up to look at the majesty and the glory of God for what he's done for the world. I want to look at that first thing. What is, what, concerning what Mary's song is about, that Mary's song is about what God has done for her. The song starts out, if you look at your text, of Mary singing about all the things that God has done for her. And what has God done? He has remembered her. He has remembered her. Verse 48. He has looked on the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. Which today, you know, seeing how we think or, you know, just cherish Mary in some ways, some ways too much. We get that. Okay, yeah, okay, yeah, God remembered you. You're, you're carrying the son of God. But we've got to remember who Mary is at this point in time of the story. We've got to remember who Mary is as she sings this song. Mary is a nobody. She's a nobody. Back in verse 38, which is why I included it, she even refers to herself as a poor servant girl. That this is who she is. She's a servant now of the Lord. She is not noticed by the players in the world. She belongs to no inner circles. She shops at the Salvation Army not because it's cool. Because that's all she can afford. This is who Mary is. 
And to make matters worse, she's pregnant and she's not married. Her place in society is ruined. Socially, she is a nobody. But the interesting thing about this is that we hear none of that in the tone of her song, do we? Why? Because Mary, in one of the most beautiful acts, one of the most beautiful acts of submission in the Bible, says this, Lord, let it be according to your word. In other words, for Mary, trusting and believing in God's word trumps all self-preservation. There is no need for her to go and do reputation damage control here. She's not worried about what others might think at this point in time, even though she might be in a state of, of confusion. Who wouldn't be? But she's not worried about what others might think of her because the only voice that matters to her is the voice of the Lord. The only person who gets the last word in saying who Mary is, is God. And boy, wouldn't that be nice to live like that? And so instead of the song being about confusion, instead of it being about woe is me, what do we hear instead? We first hear her praises to God for what she has done for her. He has remembered his lowly servant. He has looked upon her a nobody, a nobody. And he has done great things for her. And if I could stop there for just a minute and sort of come off the pages here of the text and come into this room, that is what Advent is for you. That is what God has done for you as well. This season tells us that he has remembered you as well, that he has looked at your lowly estate And he has smiled upon you. He has looked upon you and he has brought you something. Jesus, the savior of this world. For you. That is what Advent is. And it's as we enter into that. As we enter into this idea of God even remembering us. This is why the sweetness wins out. And we'll see this to be more true for Mary as we go along. This is the first thing. What Advent is, it is a looking back and also a looking forward. This is what the song is. It's what the first part of the song is for Mary. It is remembering what it is that God has done for her, but it doesn't stop here at all, does it? It, stop, it? it continues and it goes on as Mary begins to talk about what God has done for the world. Verses 51 to 55 talk about a turning upside down of the status quo. We read language of the proud being scattered and the mighty being torn from their thrones. And those who have been scattered, the text says, the hungry and the humble, he has gathered and he has exalted. Tim Keller says this about this passage. He says that the grace of God gathers, the, gathers those who have been scattered. And by scattered, those who are the lowly, those who are the humble, those who don't have a place to go. It gathers those who have been scattered, but it scatters those who have been gathered. Those who think of themselves too much. Those who think that, 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 that what is important in this world are the places of power that they can rise to and hold over each other. That's it. This is Mary's song as a testimony to the faithfulness of God and how he is in his timing and what he is doing is trustworthy and how he is turning and changing things um, and how he is implementing his plans that he has promised from so far long ago. In other words, what Mary is singing about 
And why she's singing, maybe more importantly, is that it is his story that she finds herself wrapped up in and not her own. And that's really the point. It is his story that Mary is caught up with, not her own. If you do a cross-reference of Mary's song, which is something that people who go to seminary do, you find a lot of it coming from Hannah's song. And who was Hannah? Well, Hannah was the mother of Samuel from 1 Samuel, right? And she, uh, you find a lot of what Hannah sang about. You find a lot of that showing up in Mary's song. But that's not the only place that we find echoes of the Old Testament in Mary's song. We also find pieces of it coming from Genesis 17, which was this remarkable story of God and Abraham and God making his covenant promises with Abraham and about how they will be for his offspring and their offspring. But then there are these faint echoes also of Deuteronomy. And I needed to read that somewhere else because I didn't read Deuteronomy about the steadfast love of God. We can laugh at that, right? Who's read Deuteronomy? But it doesn't stop there either. As I mentioned, 1 Samuel, she talks about Hannah's song. 2 Samuel is in there too, along with Job, along with the Psalms. Isaiah makes an appearance in the song too, along with Ezekiel, Micah, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. What's the point? Mary has crammed the entire Old Testament into this song. It's as one commentator says, is that what Mary has tried to do is virtually put the whole Bible into her song because she is so caught up in God's story and not her own. And that is why she celebrates. That is why she celebrates. It is his story that Mary longs to be a part of and is a part of. It is his majesty and the glory that she seeks to proclaim and nothing else. If Advent does anything for us this year, let it stir our hearts and our imagination to be caught up in the story of what God is doing and not the story of our own fill-in-the-blank. This time of year invites us to that, does it not? To think that it's possible to be part of a story where the sweetness doesn't run, doesn't, doesn't, or where the sweetness does, does win out. That requires imagination. One of the very interesting things about Mary's song is even though her baby is the reason for this song, we hear very little specifically about the baby in this song, who, of course, is Jesus. And why is that? Well, it has everything to do with whose story she's caught up in. One commentary says this, and it's a little bit long, but I agree with it so much, and I think it helps make this point um, even more. It says, Mary had the godliness to look beyond her gift And praise the God who gave it. To magnify means to enlarge. And what Mary wanted to enlarge was her vision of God. Her goal was to show his greatness. She wanted to magnify God, not her own position as the mother of the Son of God. She knew that she was blessed because of who God was, not because of anything that she had done. Therefore, and here's the point, she wanted God to be seen to be great, not herself. And the way to show this was not by thinking only about what God was doing in her life, but by enlarging her vision to see the majesty of God. She wanted to enlarge her vision to see the majesty of God. For Mary, she doesn't mention her baby specifically, ironically, because she desires to make God bigger and herself 
smaller. This is the story she's caught up in. And it leads me to sort of ask this question first to myself. When was the last time you found yourself caught up in the majesty of God? That what you wanted to enlarge so much was your vision of him and his glory. The mysterious wonder that is God himself. When was the glory of God in your life the reason for celebration? And not some successful merger of a company. And not some grade that you got on a test. And listen, this is not a question that I'm offering this morning to shame you or myself. There's plenty of that. This is a question of invitation. This is a question to draw you in, to draw me in. To begin to expand our minds, our imagination, to get caught up into another story other than our own. It is to stir curiosity. What would happen if I began to open myself up to the mysterious wonders of God as Mary is doing and submit myself as she has to them? That's what Advent is about. To be caught up in his story and not my own because isn't that what the season what Christmas really is. This is what we see in Mary. We see submission to the mysterious wonders of God, which as it turns out, submission and all of its taboos in our culture today, it really is the beginning of how we enter into a place where our vision is enlarged to see his majesty and his glory. There's no other way around it. You, you can't begin to come into and see God and all that he is without first sitting at his feet. But how hard is that for us? How hard is it for us to say, let it be according to your will? For Mary, God's will is so grand, it's so other. Her soul can do nothing but sing. And isn't that what you and I are really looking for day in and day out? We're, just, we're looking for something that will cause us to sing. Figuratively speaking, but maybe Literally. We want the bells and the whistles, the pleasures and the joys of this world because our hope is that they will bring us joy, that they will make us sing. But we all know that the week after Christmas, if I could jump there, we all know that we're tired of those things. And we're looking for something new again. I love what the psalmist says, David, in Psalm 16, though. He says, you, referring to God, make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And I love the commentary by one of my seminary professors as he says, after reading that text, as it turns out, God is truly a hedonist. So there you go. But if Mary's song is telling us anything this morning, it's not the stuff under the tree this season that satisfies the heart or anything for that matter. It's not that stuff that quenches the soul's thirst. It's the majesty of God is being drawn up into his story, into that mysterious wonder of what he is doing that we should desire to be caught up in as well. For Mary, her song was the best she could do to give us a picture, a taste, if you will, of that majesty. But for us, we see it most fully in Jesus Christ. It is his arrival that stirs our souls to rejoice. This is a rival that causes us to long to be a part of a story where the sweetness does not run out. 
And it's not just for this time of year, my friends, but for all eternity, for all eternity. This is what Mary's song is about. It is a celebration of what God has done for her, and it's a celebration of what God has done for this world. So how does it shape us? How do we make this song our song today? As Martin Luther said many, many years ago, he said, For she's saying it not for herself alone, but for us all, to sing it after her. So how do we do that? Why do we do that? First, the first way that we make Mary's song our own is that we stop asking God to be a part of our stories and we start longing to be a part of his. Let me say that again. We stop asking God to be a part of our stories and we start joining and being a part of his. Can you imagine Mary saying as she is on her way to visit her distant cousin, I don't want to be pregnant. I don't want this baby. I don't want to be 14 and unmarried and have this baby. Today, you probably can, right? If we kind of come out of the Christian story of what's really happening. Mary had every, every right in one sense to say that. But that would be asking God to come into her story. I'm sure she had plans of college. I'm sure she had plans of, of this family that she wanted in, in the right way, right? I'm sure she had plans of all these wonderful things that, she think, that we think about and that we desire and want. And they're good things. But how much of those things become, becomes the dictation of, of, of what our life should be, and more importantly, how God should fit into that. And part of the sourness of, of, of Christmas, then, is as we sort of sit around the table and figure out why things aren't the way they're supposed to be, really the sour is the frustration of trying to cram God into our own poor stories. When really the, 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 the glory and the joy is longing to be a part of His. It's not easy. But it's where joy is. So that's the first thing of making this song ours. We, we, we stop asking God to be a part of our story. And we join what story that he is calling us to be a part of. Because that is the anchor of where all our, all our celebration should and will come from. But secondly, the way that we make this story our own this morning is that we must live in the past perfect tense of God's promises. And I, I'm sure... I've never had a more nerdy seminarian application than this point. But I thought it was the best way to remember it. We have got to live in the past perfect tense of God's promises. What do I mean by past and perfect tense? For Mary and her song, this is what God is not just doing in the world, but in fact what God has already done. For Mary and her song, it's not what God is doing for her and, and, and doing what he's doing for the world. It's what God has, in fact, already done. Notice the tenses there in your Bible. It's the past perfect tense, which means she sings as though these things have already happened. He has shown strength. He has scattered. He has brought down the mighty. He has helped his servant Israel. She is praising God for the gift of her son. But that son, the reason for the song, is still in her womb. She is praising God for the scattering of armies, but no armies have fallen. She is praising God for helping his servant Israel, but in the coming months, the local government is going to decree a death sentence for the firstborn male Jew over the area. How? Is Mary singing about things, God's promises, as if they are already 
here and complete? Why is she singing in the past tense? And some people could say, well, she's probably reflecting upon some of the past uh, stories of Scripture and how God has been faithful. Some of those wonderful events in history where God has, uh, has acted. Maybe she's revisiting some of those. But I think Luke knows better. I think he's inspired by the Holy Spirit. I really do. See, I think Luke is convinced that she is praising God for what he will do in Jesus Christ. That God's promises, when he makes them, are as good as already done. The torch of God's promises throughout history has found their last leg in the race, and it's Mary. Who will give birth to a son that will be, as Paul will say to the letter in 2 Corinthians, the yea and amen of all of God's promises. She sings in the past tense because when God says he'll do something, it's as if it's already done. And because that's true, friends, that is why we can say today, no matter how sour it gets, that the sweetness wins out. Do we live as Mary does in the past perfect tense of God's promises? even as we wait for them to come in full. To do this will require some imagination, no doubt. To do this will inquire, re- require our vision, and our, uh, our vision of God's majesty to become bigger and bigger and bigger. Why? Because for us today, to live according to what time it is in the story means that we are to live as though Jesus, the promise of Jesus' return has actually happened. And do we live like that? Do we live as though that is certain? That all the promises that we speak of in that return of the wiping of those tears and the healing and the restoration, does that shape the way that you live today and tomorrow? It's a hard thing to do. It's hard because for us and even for Mary, a day is coming. A day and a day might already be here for you. Where that song just stops playing. See, for Mary, there is a day coming where she's going to need to live in the past perfect tense of God's promises more than ever. And if you could go with me for just a little bit longer, think about, think about what Mary is about to experience over the life of Jesus. In our fourth song, when she takes Jesus to be circumcised, um, <clears throat> the priest there will tell Mary that this son will be, a, be, will be as... <clears throat> Excuse me. A sword. It will be a sword will pierce her soul because of this child. Then Mary is going to lose her boy for three days when when he's twelve, and any parent knows what that's like. But it's going to get it's going to get a little worse. In in about thirty years, he's going to seemingly go crazy and begin renouncing his family, or at least what begin talking about what his true and who his true family is. No mother wants to hear that. But the worst, the worst will be when Mary stands at the foot of the cross of which her boy hangs. She will watch her boy die. It doesn't get much more sour than that. And I have to wonder in the midst of that time, in the midst of that pain and confusion at the foot of the cross, I have to wonder if she thought of her song that she wrote so many years before. I have to wonder if she still claimed it or she thought, I'm such a fool. 
And maybe for her at that time, she didn't think much of it at all. Maybe for her, the song stopped completely. Because the sour can be so persuasive in life, can it? It can be so raw. But the majesty of God is so much bigger. The majesty of God is so much bigger than anything that we can imagine. See, Mary is going to need something so much bigger than she is at that point in life. And it's here that even Mary needs to live in the past perfect tense of God's promises more than ever. For Mary, at the foot of the cross, that song will indeed stop, but only for a minute. Only for three days. So she goes to that tomb and she goes to, 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 with ointments and she finds that tomb rolled away. Resurrection. Did Mary have the imagination for that? I think it's one of the wonderful graces of God to her to bring her to that tomb. To show her that look, as sour as it's gotten for you, the sweetness wins out because my promises are true. Mary is going to need that. See, the attraction to Mary for all of us and her song is that it it wasn't written by someone who never experienced the sour of life. You can know that this morning. It wasn't written by someone who never had bad things happen to them. It wasn't written by someone who lived within the naivete of life and never experienced its bitter kiss. Mary traveled to places like all of you will or have traveled. And sometimes for those moments, the song indeed does stop. And maybe where you're sitting today, this morning, the song has stopped. Maybe you can't even remember the last time you heard the music. What the promise of Advent might mean for you then, this year, is that there will come a time where that music will play louder than it's ever played before. Because the promises of God are not just promises that are thrown out there and that maybe they might happen. They're as good as, they, as, as being done already. Do we live in the past perfect of God's promises? That what he has promised is as good as if it's already happened. And how would that begin to shape who you are? How you will live today? And maybe more importantly, what you will do tomorrow. As we close, what song are you singing this morning? What story do you find yourself either a part of or longing to be a part of that has given you, if any, need for celebration? What song are you singing this morning? What is your song? And can you even hear the music? Could I suggest a new one? A song for the Savior. One that promises that no matter how sour the sour in life, the sweetness will always win out. That is Mary's song for us, and that is Mary's song for you this evening, this morning. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Advent. We thank you for its promise of how we look back to see promises fulfilled, but look forward and the longing for promises anew to be fulfilled, but that we also have this wonderful song that tells us that your promises are as good as done. We prepare ourselves for that this season. We think of Advent in new ways. Would we be stirred, would our imaginations be stirred to come into a vision of your majesty that just stirs our joy, that swallows any other 
um, desire to be a part of anything else but this story that you are calling us and inviting us to be a part of, the story of Advent. We pray this all in your Son's name. Amen.